Well, good morning. My name is Rob Jenner. I want to welcome you to our live stream. If you are just joining in or have been joining us during that time of prayer and scripture reading, we're excited that you're streaming along with us, wherever that might be, if it's here on the Central Coast or in Queensland or even different parts of the world. I wonder if you've ever experienced this, though, no matter where you live. It's Saturday afternoon. There you are at your house doing your chores when all of a sudden you hear a knock at the door. And when you get there, lo and behold, it's two people finely dressed, dressed for, you know, very nice, smiles on their faces, and they'd like you to join their church. They even have a brochure that they hand you that explains what they believe and why they're, uh, as they would say, just a nuanced version of Christianity. Well, obviously, you're not really interested, and, and maybe you've heard about these guys. These are the people that don't believe in the Trinity. And so you don't really want to join their church, but you're not really sure what to say to them. And you don't want to be rude either. So you're, after about a couple minutes of awkward exchange of, Oh, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Look, I've got chores to do. Have a lovely day. As you close the door and you have the brochure in your hand, you look out the window and, and there they are heading to your neighbor's house. And as you take the brochure, maybe it, it becomes a, uh, you know, something to make paper airplanes for the kids. Maybe it goes in the bin. Maybe you have a look at it. But can I ask? What's the difference? What's the bottom line difference between what their church believes and what your church believes? Well, it's the Trinity, right? At least that's what you've been taught to say. It's the Trinity. Yeah, that's it. But what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Is it like water? That's, you know, it can evaporate like the spirit. It can be solid like ice. It can be fluid. What, what is it? No, that's probably not a good illustration. Is it like an egg? Well, that's probably not a good one either. What's the Trinity then? How do we explain this? It's a very complex doctrine to explain. And oftentimes people throw their hands in the air and just because of its complexity and feel like, well, this is just overwhelming. It's, it's beyond me. Or other people just sort of dismiss it as just something pastors get excited about, or maybe some theologians, or maybe there's some old dusty books that have been written about this. But let me say this. The Trinity is absolutely essential, not only as a core Christian doctrine, but actually, if we take out, if we erase the Trinity, as it were, we no longer have the gospel. If we get rid of the Trinity, the gospel evaporates. And so what I'd like to do today is give a, a, just a brief definition. Hopefully it's easy enough for any of you, those of you that are in high school, say you're 13, 14, 15, whatever years old, you can hear this easy to follow along definition of what the Trinity is. Now we can go, we can get, there's a whole lot more to it, but I'm just trying to boil it down so it's simple enough for, especially those of you parents, if you've got, uh, you know, teenagers that you're sitting with right now in your lounge room, you can 
take this simple definition of the Trinity and go over it with your kids. So the first thing we're going to do, this sermon really breaks down in two parts. First, we're going to give a definition of what the Trinity is. Second, we're going to see how the Trinity is basically linked to this idea of the gospel. Without the Trinity, we have no gospel. It's absolutely central to the gospel itself. That's why William Perkins once said this. He says, It is not sufficient to salvation to have a vague or unbiblical view of God. Did you hear that? It is not sufficient to salvation to have a vague or unbiblical view of God. To be saved, we must hold and believe that God the Father is our Father, the Son our Redeemer, the Holy Ghost our Sanctifier and Comforter. Did you hear what he's saying there? In order to be saved, we can't have vague notions of who God is. We have to have a, a God that's biblical. Our, our view of God needs to be rooted in the text of Scripture. And so what we're going to do is say, okay, how has God then revealed himself? Well, the Lord, as we see, the Lord is triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is at the very heart of who God is. His self-description, as it were. So, point one, definition of the Trinity. Enough to sort of hang your hat on. Point two, the Trinity is central to the gospel. That's where we're headed. Two points. Should have made them three, but two points. Let's just pray now, and then we'll, we'll unpack this. Father, we ask now that even sitting in lounge rooms, watching these on tablets, uh, we pray that your spirit would apply these biblical truths. Lord, that we would see the redemption of the Son and embrace that. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we could walk away and cherish this, actually delight in how you have disclosed who you are. We thank you, Lord, again for uh, this opportunity on Trinity Sunday to think about these rich truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I say the word Trinity, or today we're going to talk about the Trinity, I wonder if sitting there in your lounge room, if you sort of let out a, uh, or a bit of a ho-hum, right? Uh, this is only some abstract doctrine that, you know, a couple of people get jazzed about. But we should be talking about subjects that are relevant, especially during a pandemic. We shouldn't be talking about the Trinity. Come on now. I mean, what about talking about the gospel? Let me say, I've said it before. Without the Trinity, though, we have no gospel. If we erase the Trinity, the gospel disappears. But let me, let, me, let me admit this up front, though. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So as much as I'm saying it's crucial, it's part of the gospel, the word Trinity, you can't find it. Old and New Testament, it's the, word, the word itself is actually not in the, you can't proof text it, chapter and verse. 
but the Bible teaches it. So it's our job to step back and say, what does the whole Bible teach about any given subject? And then do a, a careful analysis of how God has disclosed himself. So here's the definition. Simple enough. You ready? God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Honestly, it might be worth just trying to memorize that. It's a simple enough analogy to sort of break this down. But what we'll do now is we'll, we'll actually unpack that phrase. We'll start with the first one. God is three persons. I want to read a verse to you. See if you, can, if you can hear the distinction of the three persons. Paul, chooses, Paul closes his letter to the Corinthian church with this benediction. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you hear the three persons of the Trinity mentioned? Yet they're distinguished from each other. Did you hear that? God is tripersonal. The first person of the Godhead is the Father. The second person of the Godhead is the Son. The third person of the Godhead is the Spirit. Lord willing, after today, you'll start to see that more and more as you read your Bible. God is three persons, but each person is fully God. It's the next part of our phrase here. Each person, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all divine. Here's something important. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. When Jesus promises to send the Spirit in John, in the Gospel of John, he says, after I leave and I must depart, I will send the comforter or the counselor. That's a person. He didn't say, I'm going to send the force or a liquid or a power, something you need to plug into. No, no, no. I'm going to send a person. Or how about this? There's this couple, real scallywag couple, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They had a nice piece of property on the northern beaches of Sydney, right? And they made a stack of cash with it. And what they wanted to do was actually come to their church and say, hey, we've, we're giving all of this money, all of it. You know, we, we had a property here in Narrabeen or whatever, and we wanted to give all of this to the church. So people go, wow, Ananias and Sapphira, you know what, we're going to make a building and call it the Sapphira building or whatever, right? This is, especially if they're Baptists, they would do that. We, we are going to, this is great. But, but, they, but they're lying. They're lying about it. Now, here's the deal. When Ananias and Sapphira, they own the property on the north. It's not literally the northern beaches. But they own the property. They could do whatever they wanted with it. But they wanted to lie. 
They wanted to keep a little portion of it to themselves and pretend as if they're giving all of it. And Peter, notice Peter, what he does here. So I'll read, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now look at what Peter says. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have, listen, lied to the force? No. You have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? He's like, you could have done with it what you wanted, right? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made, now listen, what Remember, each person is fully God. What made you think of doing such an evil thing? You have not lied just to human beings, all of us, but to God. See what Peter does there? The Holy Spirit is divine. Third person of the Trinity, God. Peter equates the Holy Spirit with God. The Spirit is is not a force, but a person. That is so important that we understand that. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. The Bible is very clear that there is one and only one God. The three different persons of the Trinity are one in essence, one in their essential nature. They are not three gods. They're not three gods. That's. Do you realize... If you ever, especially if you're in, say, uh, like Sydney, inter, Sydney's inner west, and you're talking with someone who's a Muslim, they will accuse us of being polytheistic. They will say, you are a polytheist because you believe in all of these different gods. No, 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 listen. There are, are three different persons of the Trinity, one in essence, one in their essential nature. They're not three gods. There is only one God. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, Deuteronomy 6. Any good little Jewish boy or little girl would start off their day either singing or shouting what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or how about Isaiah 45? I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you're somewhat convinced, but what difference does it make? I will say this. You can't make sense of God. You can't make sense of your salvation apart from the Trinity. Which leads us to our second point. The Trinity is central to the gospel. That is, if we erase the Trinity, the gospel disappears. Let me show you what I mean in the text that Reynard read for us. Look closer with me at Galatians. Paul begins this chapter by talking about receiving an inheritance. We're familiar with this idea of of an inheritance, right? 
After a family member dies, they pass on property or cars or savings or whatever to their kids. Receiving an inheritance is a practice that goes way back. It was common in biblical times, as, and that's why Paul picks it up here in Galatians 4. Look what he says. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a, from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You, you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying, look, there might be someone even a young person who will eventually come into money because their parents are loaded. But for the time being, they can't touch it. They haven't entered into the inheritance money. The time hasn't come. They can manage the estate, but they don't technically own it yet. And this is nothing new. We're familiar with this practice. So, so what Paul does is now is apply this concept to spiritual realities to how things were before Jesus came into the world. Look at verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Enslaved to the elementary principles. That's interesting. A bit of a, bit of a debate there exactly what that implies. Um, does it mean that before Jesus came, human, humans, myself, all, all of us, we were enslaved to demonic powers or spiritual forces? Well, that's what some translations take that view. Or another view is this. Is, does he mean there, is this alluding to an outlook or a mindset measures and values worth based on what it tastes and what it touches and what it sees, the natural elements, as it were. Does that make sense? So if, if I can't taste it or touch it or see it, I don't value it. Therefore, um, it's naturalistic. It's only valued on what I, can, what I can grab with my hands. That seems the most convincing to me, but no matter how you slice that, if you take the view of we're enslaved to demonic forces, or we're enslaved to a mindset. Would you agree? Being, uh, <laughs> I mean, being held bondage to a, a, to a system of thinking, or being captive to a demonic host is it's not a it's not exactly ideal. I mean, who would put their hand up for that? It's not good. Yet before coming to Christ, that was our condition. Living in slavery. All this has changed. It has come to an end. And you know, Paul could have stated that really simply. Do you, do you understand? He could have said in verse 4, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. That's not the case anymore. Let's go home, have some lunch. But he doesn't. I want you to see clearly what he does in verse 4 and all the way through. What he does is fascinating. He allows us to see the work of the Trinity in salvation. Look at verse 4. See if you can spot, if you're tracking along, see if you can spot the Trinity here. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Interesting. Could you see each person of the Trinity in those verses? Can you also see how Paul links the good news of salvation with the doctrine of the Trinity? It's right there in verse 4. God the Father sent God the Son. Maybe you've been to a church that prayed this way. Maybe you didn't even hear it yourself. Oh, Father, we come before you. Father, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Hold on. Is that accurate? Did God the Father die on the cross? No. God the Father sent the Son to die on the cross. There came a point in history where the Son entered into space and time and was born of a woman. That's what we reflect about on Christmas, don't we? Besides eating pavlova. But the God-man comes to redeem those under the law. He's the only one who could pull this off because he shares the Father's divine power. No one else could overcome sin, bear God's wrath, and crush death. But notice in verse 6, another person in the Godhead plays a crucial role in our salvation. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father not only sends the Son, he also sends the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Son accomplished our redemption and adoption, but the Holy Spirit applies it to our experience. The Spirit enables God's adopted children to pray to the Father. You see, each person in the Godhead plays a crucial role in our salvation. I hope you can see that. There's a great quote uh, that I read this week by a guy named Joel Beakey. Some of you guys know who Joel Beakey is because about a year ago, we went down to Sydney. A friend of mine um, who pastors down there, um, we went to a, a conference, an all-day conference, and Joel Beakey gave three different um, talks, and um, he's, he's written a lot of books. Uh, I read part of one of his books uh, this week. It's on the Trinity, or at least a chapter's on it, a couple chapters on it. And this is what Joel Beakey says. He says, The gospel is essentially Trinitarian. Every member of the Trinity performs an indispensable function in our salvation. Without God the Father, there would be no one to send the Son and Spirit into the world to accept the Son's sacrifice or to hear the Spirit-wrought prayers of the redeemed. Without the obedience and sufferings of God the Son, no one, no one could escape God's curse or enjoy God's blessing in the Spirit. Without the renewing work and indwelling presence of God the Spirit, no one would benefit from Christ's redemptive work or have any assurance of being reconciled to God as his child. Apart from the divine Spirit, God could not dwell within the hearts of the redeemed to relate them to the Father and the Son. Without the Trinity, the gospel disappears. Now, that's, there's a lot there, isn't there? But I hope you're seeing this unison here, that the Trinity's working together. 
And, and I, like I says here, without God the Father, there would be no one to send the Son, right? And then he says, without the renewing work and indwelling presence of God the Spirit, no one would benefit from Christ's redemptive work. And apart from the divine Spirit, God could not dwell within the hearts of the redeemed. And that's why and he says there, notice the, what, what happens. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. I hope that this is becoming, a making a little bit more sense to you at this point. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Today is Trinity Sunday. And that's why I wanted to take this time for us to think about. Today is one of those days, though, especially if you're, I understand if you're live streaming, it's a lot of vegetables. But vegetables are good. You know, sometimes my kids don't like eating vegetables. Sometimes they whinge about it. But they need to eat them. And Trinity Sunday is a, a marvelous day of the year where churches here in Australia, the States, the UK, put some, so, some time aside to really think about the truth of the Trinity, how God has disclosed himself. And I wanted to close by this. Um, I want to recommend one book for you. Um, this is a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I don't know how well you can see that there. Anyway, maybe Nige can throw that up on a PowerPoint. Um, and then I want to actually close by reading a, this is called 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. I'm not sure why it's 131 and not 150 or 100. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, the very first man that's highlighted in this, uh, they're, they're short little, maybe two pages on different, of, of 131 people. And the very first, first guy is a guy named Athanasius. And when you think of Athanasius, maybe this is the first time you've even heard that name before, but Athanasius is known for defending the Trinity, really putting his life on the line for the Trinity. And, and I thought I would just read this for us just as a time to close. Some of these words, some of these historical terms might sound foreign to you. Some of, some of you, it might not. But I want you just to start to get familiar with this guy, Athanasius, and the importance of the Trinity here. So it says, Black Dwarf was the tag enemies, which was the tag name the enemies gave him. And the short, dark-skinned Egyptian bishop had plenty of enemies. He was exiled five times by four Roman emperors, spending uh, 17 of the 45 years he served as Bishop of Alexandria in exile. So this is about, he was born 296 and lived, um, so, you know, this is just not long after Jesus, but about 150 to 200 years after Jesus, okay? Let's give you some context. Um, it says here, Yet, in the end, his theological enemies were exiled from the church's teaching, and is Athanasius' writings that shaped the future of the church. Most often, the problem was his stubborn insistence that Arianism the reigning, reigning, quote, orthodoxy of the day was, in fact, a heresy. So Arianism taught this. Arius taught 
There once was a time when the sun was not. So we, t we believe that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Before all eternity, remember we talk about God's eternality? Jesus was there in eternity past. Arius says, hmm, actually there probably was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and he was created by the Father. That's what Jehovah Witnesses essentially believe today. They're, they are modern-day Arians. Okay? So, it says, The dispute began when Athanasius was the chief deacon, assistant of Bishop of, Alex, uh, of Alexandria. While Alexander preached, with perhaps no philosophical minuteness, on the Trinity, Arius, who was a priest... Um, says the father begat the son, then he was begotten and had, and had a beginning in existence. And from then it follows, there was a time that the son was not. The argument caught on, but Alexandria and Athanasius fought against Arius, arguing that it denied the Trinity. Christ is not of a like substance to God, they argued, but the same substance. To Athanasius, this was no splitting of theological hairs. Salvation was at issue. Only one who was fully human could atone for human sin. Only one who was fully divine could have the power to save us. To Athanasius, the logic of New Testament doctrine of salvation assumed the dual nature of Christ, that is, being fully God and fully man. Those who maintain... There was a time when the Son was not robbed God of his word like plunderers. Alexander's um, letter, signed by Athanasius and probably written by him, attacked the consequences of Arius' heresy. The Son, then, is a creature and a work. Neither is he like, in essence, up to the Father. Neither is he like true and nature word of the Father Neither is he, and he's quoting Arius there. The controversy spread, and all over the empire, Christians could be heard singing a catchy tune that championed the Arian view. There was a time when the sun was not, and every city, wrote a historian, bishop was contending against bishop, and the people were contending against one another, like swarms of gnats fighting in the air. Word of the dispute um, made it into the newly converted Emperor Constantine the Great, who was more concerned with seeing church unity than theological truth. That's, that's deserves, I could preach on that. I won't. Divisions in the church, he told the bishops, is worse than war. To settle the matter, he called a council of bishops. Of the 1,800 bishops invited to Nicaea, about 300 came and argued, fought, and eventually fleshed out an early version of what's called the Nicene Creed. I don't know if you've heard of that before. The council, led by Alexander, condemned Arius as a heretic, exalted him, and made it a capital offense to possess his writings. Constantine was pleased that the peace had been restored to the church. Athanasius, whose treatise on the Incarnation led the foundation for the Orthodox party at Nicaea, was hailed as the noble champion of Christ. So, 
Here's how things turn, though, for this guy, Athanasius. Within a few months, supporters Varius talked Constantine into ending Arius's exile. With a few private additions, Arius even signed the Nicene Creed, and the emperor ordered Athanasius, who had recently succeeded Alexander as bishop, to restore the heretic to fellowship. When Athanasius refused, his enemies spread false charges against him. He was accused of murder, illegal taxation, sorcery, and treason, the last of which led Constantine to exile him now a German, and to a German city. Constantine, listen there, Constantine died two years later and Athanasius returned to Alexandria. But in his absence, Arianism had gained the upper hand. Now church leaders were against him and they banished him again. So I don't know if you're tracking along, but so he basically convinces the emperor, then Arius does, that Athanasius is wrong. Athanasius gets banned. When Constantine dies, Athanasius says, well, maybe I can come back now. But by that time, Arianism had gained such a foothold that when Athanasius, who is Orthodox and Trinitarian, comes back, they say, get out of here. I, for us, I know that we're, you know, we're, especially if you're live streaming, you're kind of going, I guess this is kind of important. You have to understand, without this moment in history, God was Christ was continuing to build his church. We lose Orthodox Christianity at this point. Not long after Jesus, that the whole church mucked it up. We're no longer Trinitarian. We're no longer even Christian. You understand? So, look what Athanasius does, though. Athanasius, um, so he fled, and then he returned in 346 um, and ends up, I'll just paraphrase the rest of it, he ends up winning the day, convincing the church that the Trinity is true and right and biblical, and they label Arius and Arianism as false. But you have to understand, at this point in history, it was really on a knife's edge. And this guy, Athanasius, did you hear that? 17 years of his life were spent in exile, all on this issue of the Trinity. Friends, this is fundamental to who we are as Christians. It might seem abstract. It might seem kind of like, yeah, I don't really know. But I, I hope and my prayer is that you would see the necessity to think rightly about God. And in order to do so, we would see as God has disclosed himself as triune. Parents, I just encourage you, take opportunities to think and talk about this with your children. Those of you that are watching this, maybe together, maybe you're gathered in a lounge room. We have some growth group notes. You can talk about, discuss those if you'd like. But let's continue to think about the importance of the Trinity. I want to close by saying this. I want to actually quote from the Apostles' Creed. And it says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Amen. What a glorious creed that is. Andrew's going to come now and close us out, and let's continue to think big thoughts after God. Amen. Thanks, Rob. Uh, wow, I think the, the, the Trinity being such a, a core aspect of, of our, our faith is something that we kind of take for granted, you know. To not have uh, God the Father to send the Son, no sons for the redemptive work, and no Holy Spirit that actually allows us to commune with God. Uh, that they're big concepts, and uh, if any one of those is not true, then... Uh, and um, we're all foolish, really. Uh, but praise God, they are true. So Rob mentioned these probably about a dozen times uh, during his sermon, but uh, hopefully you can join me. So God is three persons. Uh, each person is fully God, and there is one God. So um, I hope that sticks with you uh, this week. Uh, I'm going to wind up today with uh, that uh, benediction that Rob um, started with earlier in his sermon, which is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.